0: Previously on The Ascent of Board Games. It is time for our annual review of stuff we liked this year. Jason is not with us today. He is, however, kind enough to have pre-recorded his selections.
1: I don't think any of us are going to score any points without Jason here.
2: I kind of did these in year of release order, so there are no particular order in terms of favorites. My next pick is Heat, Pedal to the metal.
1: This very much feels like a Formula Day, but instead of being dice powered, it is card-powered. Which is infinitely better. The Adventures of Robin Hood. This year, the expansion came out.
3: Friar Tuck is Stupid, I believe is what it's called.
1: And
0: now the thrilling conclusion of the 2023 year-end wrap-up. Let us hear what Mr. Jason has to say.
2: Number three is a game we've actually talked about a fair bit, so I'm not gonna cover it too, too in-depth, since we've talked about it a lot, but that's Oathsworn Into the Deepwood from 2022 from Shadowborn Games and Jamie Jolly. This is, guess what, a cooperative game. This one's not a dungeon crawl. It's more of a boss battler. Essentially, you're picking characters from what's called a free company. These are people that are oathsworn, that are basically devoted their lives to fighting the horrible abominations that come out of the woods and murder humans. There's not a lot of human settlements left and the only ones that do exist are ones that are like fortress cities, kind of like what you'd see in like Attack on Titan. And the only thing connecting them is something called the Wire Road. And for whatever reason, this wire resists the growth of the deep wood To some extent, uh, deters the monsters from attacking you. Certainly not stopping them entirely. You will pick one of the, the Free Company characters. There's quite a lot to choose from. They all play very differently. They've got different powers. They've got different skill cards. They've got different proficiencies with weapons and armor. The game's kind of broken up in two separate phases. The first phase for each chapter is kind of an investigation phase. You'll be in a location, you'll usually be on a map, and you'll be going to different locations on that map, spending time trying to figure out what's the next threat you're going to be facing. If you do really well, you can earn extra gear. And if you do really, really well, you'll even find out information about the monster before you have to go fight it. And the reason why that's important is you have a number of different skills you can choose from, and you might not want to take a skill that's really good at hitting a lot of smaller little minions when the monster you to fight doesn't have any, right? So it's a way of helping you prepare your equipment, prepare the proper skills to give you the best chance of fighting and defeating the monster. Each of the characters will get a certain amount of crystals, these orange crystals, that kind of represent your stamina. And you'll spend those to both move and to trigger the skill cards you have in your hand. As soon as you play something, it goes into a, a cooldown. They call it battle flow. Your character board has three different positions, one, two, and three, and you'll play that card into whichever of those positions that it's supposed to go into. So if you play, you know, the more powerful cards tend to take longer to come back. So if I play a really strong attack or something, it might go into the third spot. And it doesn't move out of that spot unless I play another card to that third spot. And then that will push whatever cards are already there down to the second spot. So a lot of the game is trying to figure out, okay, I've got these cards in hand. What order do I need to play them in to maximize my chances for getting these cards back to my hand so they can do damage, so I can get my defense back up and, you know, properly mitigate that resource? Games of Campaign, we've played through the entire campaign. We really, really liked it. It's got really solid writing. It feels like a very coherently told story. The narration in the app is first rate, like probably some of the best narration I've heard in one of these games. And for the most part... The challenges that you do during the course of the game come off really well. I really enjoyed the investigation phases. For the most part, you could figure out what they were trying to tell you. Sometimes there were things that were just kind of, I don't know, the clues just weren't good enough. There are sections where you're exploring not in a city, and those were very tedious, and I did not care for them. (laughs) I don't know if those have been changed. They just recently released a second edition of the game. I just went through the very, very onerous process of replacing all the cards that they replaced. I will say, based on kind of just an audit I did of looking through them as I was replacing them, it looks like they make the game much harder. (laughs) The priest character's power has become much, much less useful and feels like a lot of the bosses have been given extra health and extra armor, which, considering how much difficulty we had with some of these bosses, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. But we haven't started our second playthrough of it, so don't quite know how that's going to come out. But I'm eager to give it another shot. Like, I enjoyed it so much, I'm very happy to be playing through it again. It's not a super excessively long campaign, which also helps. Like, you're not going to be playing this for, like, 300 hours or anything insane like that. That was Oathsworn Into the Deepwood. As far as I know, they're not planning on making any sequels to it, but they do have another game they have announced, kind of. They haven't really given any details on it, but I will definitely be checking it out. At least they have my attention, considering how much we enjoyed this particular game.
0: Hard to argue with that one. I think that was on just about everybody's list last year.
3: Yeah, I thought about putting it on my list, and I specifically didn't include it because we had had it on our list last year. Great game. All in all, I think the experience is exceptional from Osworn, even if there are a couple of little pieces that were a little, let's call it, underclued sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's very, very good. Yeah, I
4: think the story needs some work, agreed. It needs to be made less hard in the story.
1: (laughs) Jeez. And I think I said this last year, but it is my favorite miniatures painting advent calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And yeah,
4: uh, Sandy really hated it. Wow. That's fascinating. I was really tired to it, but I did paint mine, so I may have to sell my painted copy, which is a scary and weird thought. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: That's interesting. I'm fascinated. We can talk about it later. I'm in- I'm fascinated why Sandy didn't click with it, but...
4: Yeah. Well, I think the length of the game. <laughs> mm, sure. The overall complexity and depth, and the fact that everyone became an alpha gamer immediately.
0: <laughs> That's fair. That is certainly a thing that could happen in this game.
4: The game is so dense, and mm-hmm. uh, without real turns. Wait, I need to do this. Wait, no, 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 no. You can't do that, because I am getting into, like, arguing about the details of a turn, I think that burned her out.
0: Yeah. Sure. I don't think we had as much of that problem, but I can certainly see it happening. Yeah, totally. All right, Joe, what do you got for us?
3: So for third on my list, I have Earth, designed by Maxim Tadif and released by Inside Up Games. And Earth is... It hasn't quite reached this level... But it is it is pretty close to functionally firing terraforming Mars. It's an action building game, right? On your turn, you select a specific action. You get to choose between a, a handful of different actions. And the nice thing is, you do stuff on your board, and everyone else does stuff on their board at a lesser effect. It's one of those, hey, you pick, everybody benefits, right? Mm-hmm. So there is almost no downtime in the game. There can be little spots of it, right? But generally. Every time every player takes a turn, everybody is doing stuff to their board, which I love in games. Functionally, you're kind of engine building, right? The setting is you're building planet Earth functionally. You have various kinds of plants and biomes, and you have a kind of a 4x4 grid that you're laying these things out in. Some components want to look at the cards nearby in the grid for scoring purposes. Which can make the decisions about where you put stuff in the grid very impactful. There's a set of kind of centralized things that you're trying to work towards that are are the scoring for the round, and you know claiming them early gets you more points, and over time gets you less points. Right, if you're the first person to score them, you get the maximum, and then that number goes down every turn. Much like terraforming Mars's core mechanic is, you get a big hand of cards and you play out cards to kind of build your engine. Earth is extremely similar to that. It kind of doesn't have terraforming Mars's map section, which sometimes can feel like an afterthought you know you can certainly have a game of terraforming where your map is you you put a little green on there, you put a couple cities maybe, but it's it's still kind of barren, whereas you know there are some games where it's it's kind of lush and full and looks really great right Mars kind of does away with that bit and you just have your individual grid, but it feels really good it evokes a lot of the same emotion for me that Terraforming Mars does, right, the, hey, let me go get some extra cards and then see what's the best path through here of the the cards that I kind of pull. How do I make the best use of all the stuff that I've gotten to achieve, like, the centralized goals and my personal goals and all that kind of stuff? I don't think it's quite at the point where I'm like, hey, yeah, it's totally fired Terraforming Mars for me, but it is excellent. I really, really like it.
0: Yeah, I think this would have been on my list if I had gotten to play it more. It's like we did a couple sample turns for a previous episode and Tabletop Simulator, and I turned around and bought it immediately because I knew I was going to like it. I just haven't gotten to play any more of it yet, but it looks really promising, and I'm glad to hear that with a little more time in it, you're still digging it. I like this one a lot.
1: Point for Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This game is good. It is very actually reminiscent of Wingspan, which I don't love. Mm -hmm. And I think the primary difference is, in Wingspan, you are getting your birds to build an engine to generate more resources, to get more birds, to score more points, yada, yada, yada. In this one, though, what you are building is that grid, which is just building points. It's skipping that spend money to make money engine that Wingspan has.
0: So, Mike, what
1: is next on your list? Next on my list is a game called Decorum. Decorum is a game that is created by Charles McKen, Harry McKen, and Drew Tenenbaum, and is published by Floodgate Games. This is a game that I was introduced to this year. That is tandem interior decorating, <laughs> except you know, with terrible roommates who don't talk to each other. Everybody has a set of secret conditions that they must meet in regards to the design of this shared living space. On your turn, you can either remove an object from a room, place an object in a room, or paint. When somebody does something, it is immediately followed by, I hate why that." why would color. you do yeah. that? <laughs> and you can't really explain why, because that would be against the rules. I have my reasons. Right. And so you are you are trying to figure out like, okay, cool. Why would why would Brian paint this room blue? It's such a garish color and I need it to be green. And so you could just spend your entire game undoing what the other person or people have done, but that would be unproductive and would not help you cooperatively build the perfect living conditions. That sounds cute. I mean, this game is an adorable social experiment, and I am happy to play it any time.
3: It is possible it would have been on my list if I had thought of it. The experience of playing the game is super unique because it's like you're all doing a cooperative puzzle, but both your hands are tied behind your back. (laughs) And it's utterly fascinating to be like, okay, well, this doesn't work for me. We'll we'll need to find another way through, guys, because this change does not work for me. (laughs) One of my favorite parts of the game is that there are a couple of points where you get to share your insanities <laughs> right, with your fellow players, right?
0: Which is kind if of like living fight, with roommates.
3: If Mike and I are in a fight, right, we have a roommate meeting, and you can hand that player one of the things that you care about.
1: Joe, I need to have the same number of accessories in the room upstairs As the room downstairs.
3: What about that
1: do you not understand?
3: the other thing that's kind of weird is like, it's a bunch of people who refuse to talk to each other Mm -hmm. over the course of the game. So it feels very masculine in that stance, (laughs) where it's like, you're all decorating and silently looking at each other in anger, (laughs) as opposed to, you know, being like, oh, well, I don't think this works here. No, no, I just hate it. It's awful. (laughs) Why? I don't know.
0: I know, but I can't tell you. It's part of my secret artistic soul. All right. This may wind up getting you a point, Mike. This looks pretty cool.
1: I will say, the one thing that I personally don't love about it, but I think that is mostly just because I'm not the target audience, is that it comes with a number of scenarios for three and four players, but it comes with like 20 two-player scenarios Mm -hmm. that get progressively harder in a kind of not really campaign mode, because none of them are connected, but like they are intended to be played one after the Mm -hmm. other. And as somebody who doesn't have a Significant other to play with wow, that sounded a lot more sad than I intended. <laughs> oh, it's it was a person who has no single friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get those to the table as often as, say, a couple might, but if you do have somebody, especially a spouse who isn't really into the board gaming space, this could I see be a really fun activity to do with them. It is not an overwhelming board games like most of the games that we play. And there is a certain amount of like, you need to get into the brain of the other person playing that I think could be really fun with a significant other. Okay.
3: Yeah, it's purely cooperative. It is exceptionally easy to teach. It's very straightforward. Like, this is definitely the kind of game that it's like, this is a gateway game in the making, right? Like, this is a game that you can be like, oh, you haven't played any designer board games. Well, let's try this one. Here are all the rules. Let's just play, right? Mm-hmm. Very straightforward game.
1: Sounds promising. What was the name of that one again, Mike? Decorum. Decorum. Excellent. I think one of my favorite. it was a 2022 game. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorites, though, is Jason and I did play through some of those two-player scenarios. And I'm going to give just like a slight spoiler so y'all can get a feel for what they do with those. But in one of them, one person is the person living in the house. The other person is the ghost that haunts them. Oh, I see. You both have very specific desires (laughs) in how you want to decorate.
0: Interesting, interesting. All
1: right. So they have fun with
0: it. Very cool. Middle of my list for the year is Freelancers, a Crossroads game designed by Donald Schultz. And this is one of Plaid Hat's Crossroads game series that started back with Dead of Winter, I think was the first one. Yeah, And this one is very close to the previous one in the series, uh, Forgotten Waters, which is another game I love. Basically, the premise is this is sort of a post-apocalyptic world that has sort of morphed into a a high fantasy setting. And there are all kinds of exotic races and things, uh, except no humans. Humans are sort of the unseen extinct monsters of the game, or are they extinct? It is pretty simple to play i mean there are a lot of moving parts but everybody has like one thing that they track like one person's in charge of the map and one person's in charge of the risk tracker and one person's in charge of the book of encounters and stuff it is like forgotten waters immensely silly but it is very well written the app which is really functionally a web page has full voice acting and sound effects for everything and the voice acting is excellent in Forgotten Waters, you would pick a particular pirate character and you would play through their story. This one is sort of a two-part thing where you've got a race on one side and a, a class on the other. So I played a merman clam hunter, and then you can be a dwarf divorcee, or there are some traditional sort of fighter-cleric-type characters as well.
4: And there's the barber, barbarian. area barbarian. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And there are, I think, four different games in the base box each has its own map and its own storyline going on everybody goes along you're choosing where to go when having different encounters they have what they call a threat bag wherever you're traveling and there's a bunch of tokens in there to start with when you travel you draw one of those tokens and if you get a set of three of certain tokens then all of your target numbers go up because the game is getting harder and if you do that enough times it will fail But you can buy supplies and recruit companions who also go into that bag and make it less likely to draw those symbols. Companions are really neat. They give you some special powers. But whenever you use that power, you give the companion to someone else. So it's not like you're going to set up a ridiculous combo and keep using it. Everything is distributed around. It's a fun game. It's easy for non-gamers to get into. It's funny and well-written. And I quite enjoy it.
4: Yeah, I was a playtester for it. So I played that first scenario a lot. <laughs> so I got to know the inside of the game quite a bit. It is a lot like Forgotten Waters structurally, but improved everything so much better. You don't spend as much time, you know, just moving the ship, that same boring page that you're always doing. So they only bring you to the book to choose from choices when there's something interesting happening. And as well, the dialogue and how everything flows is so much better.
1: Yeah. That. <laughs> Being said, we play tested this once with you, and fire yeah, totally. beware, we had an experience in which we had to go look something up in the rules and it was not there. And then Frank said the dreaded words, The rulebook has already gone to the printer. <laughs> oh, yes. So, just FYI, you may need to resort to the BGG for some
3: clarifications i think they put a lot of the stuff that's missing in the app right yeah, we played topic. it recently uh, chris and brian and megan and i played it recently when we had a a game cancellation and a number of those things ended up being put in the app right to kind of supplement
4: yeah. oh that's good that's and good. mostly what we were playtesting at that point was the app mm-hmm. and so yeah they were able to do quite a bit there and i've noticed when i played again that they've improved the flow of that a lot so
0: we did good yeah i think if the game has a weak spot it is the rule book but again with the, the stuff that's in the app i think that's not a big deal yeah but yeah i quite like it it's a lot of fun it's certainly not high drama but i think it's enjoyable
3: it's actually silly but it's it's lots of fun. yeah really, it plays really up like to seven well.
0: people and it's not going to significantly expand the play time i don't think so yeah Freelancers, I like it. You should buy it.
4: So, let's see. I've got Kenfire Chronicles Night's Fall, designed by Kevin Wilson and Daryl Hardy,
1: Adela Kapusinka, and Brandon Perdue. I'm going to stop you right there for just a moment. No spoilers. Joe and I are getting ready to play this.
4: No spoilers. This was kind of refreshing after Oathsworn. (laughs) <laughs> the rule books are not good, but the rules are not complicated at all. The rules are very simple and straightforward. There are a few weird kind of things going, but basically it's structured like Host war. And it's a big old campaign. You've got a kind of story part, and usually most of the scenarios end with a battle, or sometimes two battles or whatever. The one big thing here is it's a deck builder, so you have a fixed deck you start with of 18 cards. And these cards are in pairs. One of them is an action card, which you get to play on your turn before or after moving, and that's usually your attack, but not always. And you do have some cards that are free to play. And the second card is a boost card, which is played on other people's turns and used to basically bump their effects or twist you know, their action or attack. You go through a choose-your-own-scenario. The roles in the scenario parts are basically drawing cards from your deck and matching colors with the possibility that some cards are multicolor and uh, some cards are white, meaning they're all colors, and some cards are black, meaning they have no color. And when you play a boost, you have to match the color of whatever action you're boosting or countering or whatever when you play the boost. That's almost the game. There are no dice. You're mostly playing cards to do damage things when you actually fight or, you know, just flipping them up. The campaign is foreteller voiced with a couple hinky spots in the app. You're allowed to then at the end of every adventure, go to town and, you know, you get a huge town menu that gives you various places you can go to go shopping or just see what that thing is to give you a kind of a the Nikki Valen's dragon game that Legacy of Dragon Holt has a bit of that kind of thing going. But they're a lot shorter. They're pretty much just single cards and then you can shop and get the things. And it's it. It's card crafting, you level up over time. There are side quests, so you won't see all the quests in an individual play. You might have to do something specific to open up a side quest. I think it's about twelve scenarios long, with the other nine being side quests, but I'm not sure. Hmm. And the world is basically lights gone. (laughs) That's why I say it's Lycosworn. the light has been draining away, and there are lighthouses that keep the light, to keep the darkness at bay, or else it'll overrun all the towns and eat everything.
0: Uh-oh, I'm getting tainted grail flashbacks. I
4: was going to say, like, <laughs>
1: some sort of Menhir. <laughs> yeah, totally.
4: Menhir, or the Oathsworn Jungle, or whatever. Yeah, it's a fantasy apocalypse. You don't actually have to go light. Those are all story events, so there's none of that kind of crap. Thank you. Yeah, but also, you're looking at an hour and a half. do a chapter box Mm. so the game feels a lot shorter yeah story parts don't outstay their welcome combats are pretty quick there are multi-stage combats so uh you know boss levels up (laughs) and you get cards a lot and so you're constantly looking at the cards that's going Ooh, i want this can we go to an end i need to etc to level up your decks and you can do some pretty significant changeouts in terms of your decks. And that definitely affects your style of play. But simple area move, each map might have fifteen or so spaces. So it's all pretty tight as far as you know movement and combat go. Interesting. Joe, this may have got me more excited to play this now. Oh yeah. It's really good. It's so clean. Things are easy. It's obvious what to do and the deck building is absolutely compelling.
3: I was very happy to hear it this high on Frank's list, given we're gearing up to play this as our next big thing. So
0: nice. Yep.
2: I believe we
3: are back to Jason
2: now. Next, uh, another cooperative adventure game. I guess it's almost like a dungeon crawler, kind of, and that would be twenty twenty two's Artisans of Splendid Vale by Renegade Game Studios and by uh, podcast favorite Nikki Valens. You'll remember if we were talking about Dragonholt. This is the first time I ran into anything that, that Nikki had done. Nikki Valens and three, four other people. But anyway, Nikki Valens was involved with it. We we quite enjoyed it. When we wanted to do a campaign play through this, I was more than happy to. The idea here is each of your characters, or each of the players rather, is playing a different artisan. The Artisans have different specialties. One focuses on runes. One is kind of a, an alchemist working on potions. One is kind of like a, I guess you'd say like a fashion designer. And one is like a tinkerer who works on mechanical objects. And each of them play very differently. They're all friends in this storyline. They all have intersecting storylines. They all talk and appear in each other's stories. But they all play very differently in terms of how they learn new skills, how those skills play out, how they interact in the actual missions. So some asymmetric play there, certainly. But the idea is you kind of pick a place to go every day, and you will each have a book. Each character has their own book, and most of the sections, when you go exploring somewhere, will say, go to you know page 792, and all of you will read along with 792. They recommend one person kind of being the primary narrator. And then you might have prompts inside of your own book that says, hey, your character says this thing now. And so you, you do take turns reading from your separate sections. And sometimes when you're doing some exploration, you'll be looking at a map on your page. And the map will have little points of interest. It'll say, okay, you know, hey, here's a table. It'll And on the table will be written a number like 242. And then maybe on this window, there's another number, 741. Whatever. All the people are looking at the same map in their own books. But some people have different numbers because their character sees something different or has a chance to interact differently. So they all get to read the things. But they all have kind of their own separate lens that they're looking at things from based on their character. Unsurprisingly, considering who's writing it, The characters feel very well-defined, very well-fleshed out. They have personalities. They have histories. They have uh, relationships with each other and how they interact. And so there's definitely some very good humor through a lot of the interactions. The problem is it's kind of game. You can't really say a lot for the sake of spoilers, but there's definitely some entertaining parts related to certain characters' fears, for example. But typically, you'll be going to an area. You'll be investigating, kind of understanding what's going on, maybe interacting with a map, finding stuff. And then usually there's a battle that plays out inside of that little battle book. It'll tell you to go to a certain page, and the book will be the map. So there's no setup of terrain. There's no setting up of the map. Mostly all you have to do is find the actual tokens that represent the enemies you're fighting and put them in the right places, and then track who has initiative. The way that the characters activate is based entirely off of spending dice. So at the beginning of the battle, you roll, I think it's eight dice. And then when it's your turn, you roll three additional dice that go into that dice pool, and your character can do two actions. So you might spend an attack action to attack a monster and then spend a move action to move around. One of the interesting things you can do is there's a side on the dice called a boost. That's a little plus symbol that will modify some of your actions. So, for example, you could do a move boost or an attack boost. And if you look at your character sheet, it will say, hey, your attack value is two underlined plus one die. So that means you're going to do two damage and roll a die. And if you get the same icon, you add one damage to it. Well, if you're boosting that, that underlying value goes up by one. So boosting is how you can get extra movement, how you can get extra defense, get extra damage. And then, of course, a lot of the skills and equipment that you get will modify that as well. There are stickers to place on your character for their armor. One of the characters, is almost entirely based on placing stickers on a vision board. It's been very delightful. We've, We've had a good time with it. Honestly, it's had more content in it than I was expecting. I didn't think it would have this much to do in it. So it feels like we're about halfway through. It's kind of hard to get a sense on it because it's literally just, you do things every day. I'm just basing that off the fact that they have a certain number of places for you to write entries for what you did in that adventure. But really enjoying it. We just got back into playing it again. I hope we even have it scheduled again coming up, so it'll be nice to continue that and see where it goes.
0: This is a very wise choice. Jason is a smart man. Mm-hmm. I will say that Jason is not the only person who has this on their year-end top five list, so I may have more to say about it later, but generally everything he said is true. It's real good. It's not on mine, but only because I put it last year, because it is a great
1: game and so well thought out. Mm -hmm. I'm right there with you, Frank, because I thought we had started playing this last year. So I did not include it on this year's list because of that.
3: It was this year, and I went back and checked. Wow. (laughs) I was trying to figure out if we'd played Oathsworn this year. And we had at least two sessions this year of Osworn,
1: because
3: hmm. I, I went back and looked at our text message chain.
1: Well, it's going to get an honorable mention in my book okay. then.
3: I agree with Brian. It is also on my list. So we'll talk about it then.
1: Indeed.
0: But Joe, what is on your list now?
3: So number two is La Familia, The Great Mafia War by Maximilian Mariah Fuel by Fairland Spiel. This was picked up by friend of the show, Patrick, at Gen Con, I think. Origins Gen Con? I can't remember which one. And it is a surprising pick for me. It is a game that I have almost purchased several times now because I liked it so much. And my biggest problem is like, when am I going to get this game to the table? So let me talk about how it works. It is a four-player game, but really it's a two-team-of-two game. You're two groups of mafia families trying to control territory. In essence, the team together, if they control six provinces, they have a specific name for them and now it's totally left out on my mind what it's called. But you can control function six provinces, or if any individual person controls five provinces, their team wins as well. And there are a couple of really, really clever bits to this game. The action selection section of the game, you are taking color discs that are either your color, other players' color, or a neutral color, and moving them in the same column kind of from an upper area to a lower area. And when you move the token down. You obviously use up that area. Each area can only functionally be used once a turn. And they do a bunch of different effects. You know, you'll like get a bunch of money or get to advance your family or put some units out on the board or recruit some additional units so you can put them out on the board. That mechanism is, I think, honestly the funnest part of the game. It's really cool the way it plays and interacts and you go in a weird crisscross pattern. So it's like, Team 1 does something, then Team 2 does something, then Team was does something, then Team 2 does something. Kind of back and forth. If you end up using an opponent's colored disc, you have to pay them a dollar, in essence. A lira, as I think as they call it. And that mechanism is just really fun, and it's very interesting, because you get opportunities to like replace discs with your own discs. And where you have discs and what disc you use is always an interesting decision. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to move down a disc. There's no neutral discs. But my partner has a disc and that, so I'll use theirs and I'll give my partner a dollar. And it, sometimes it's as interesting as like, oh, well, my partner needs to take a different action next turn. They need a dollar, so let me take this action so I can give them this dollar and also take my normal action. There's a lot of really, really cool interaction with it. I think it's the thing I love the most about this game. Over the course of the turn, you'll be placing orders out onto the board. And then at the kind of at the second phase of a round you'll then resolve all the orders on the board. Some of the orders are about, like, getting money and beefing up your defense. Some of the orders are about attacking another province, or some of the orders are about sending a car bomb over to the other (laughs) province and blowing a bunch of people up. Like you do.
0: We at the Ascent of Board Games do not condone car bombing or any other forms of terrorism.
3: Combat feels a lot like, not exactly like, but a lot like, Game of Thrones. If Game of Thrones was a game I played all the time, this game would immediately fire Game of Thrones for me because you can place a single order per space and then you resolve the orders, you place them all face down, and then at the end of the action round, you then do all the resolution and you do them in a specific order. And there's nothing quite as fun as like both of you and your opponent flip over an attack order, but your attack order's first and that's all that matters. Or your opponent flips over attack order, but you flick over an earlier order that's a car bomb and you're like, well, cool, I'm going to carb on the place that's about to attack. And now they're not attacking because they're all dead. <laughs> the game was a ton of fun. If I felt like I would get it to the table ever, really, because it's like, it's a really hard game to get to the table because it's exactly four players, two teams of two. And it's an involved game. It's a four or five hour game. It's a commitment. I would buy it because it has an amazing theme. The art in the game is great. The mechanics are so smart. So, so smart. I really just totally appreciate the game.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like you say, it doesn't sound like your usual cuppa. Yeah. But I'm glad to hear that it's a good
1: one. I'm a little concerned with how excited Joe was about those car bombs.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing quite like... I was playing the faction that was good at combat. So I had one that was due to bomb attacks in a single round. And there's nothing quite like the devastation of doing two of those attacks. Cause normally when you attack, you have your handful of pawns that you're kind of moving in and you decide how many you want to commit. And then either you play this very simple card game, which is actually also pretty clever, which is you put a card down and they put a card down. And then you each decide if you want to take the other person's card and of the cards, two cards are bad for you and one card is good for you. And so the likelihood that your opponent put down a bad card is higher than the likelihood they put down a good card. But they know that, and so they maybe they put down the good card. Oh, so but they're they face know that, down. So maybe they put down a bad <laughs> card. It's very much a cup in front of you, cup in front of me kind of thing.
1: Huh. What is it? Never, never challenge a Sicilian to a game of
3: wits? Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! Exactly. Exactly. And so you do literally one round of that card mechanic, which will cause some people's Tokens fall off the board, and then you start with the attacker just removing pawns one at a time until you're out of pawns. And you can choose to not play the card game and instead, as the attacker, just lose two pawns and then go to resolution, which is really lose two pawns, then you lose another pawn, and then you start doing the back and forth, right? Mm. So it makes resolution extremely fast in a game that is this complicated. It has like some flavors of diplomacy or Game of Thrones where there's not a lot of randomness here. I think there is functionally no randomness now that I think about it, which is great. In a game that needs to be this tight, having there be no randomness, it has shades of diplomacy. It has shades of Game of Thrones. And I think it's just a much better implementation of a lot of those same themes in a way that is a lot of fun and can be very surprising. Okay.
0: Interesting. I like the idea of it. I don't know if I'd want to play it for three hours.
3: Yeah, that's fair. I had a ton of fun when we did it. Like I said, I have thought about buying it a couple times, and every time I think about it, I'm like, yeah, but when would I get it to the table? I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. But, like, it is because it's so far out of our normal kind of set of games, it's, you know, it's weird.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, you like what you like. Yeah. Yeah. It does remind me of some of the coin games I have been looking at and want to do Cuba Libre so badly now. So.
3: The reason that friend of the show, Patrick, purchased this is he was walking by the booth and they, he saw kind of the top of the board game kind of blown up a little bit. And the game's art is this very stylistic, very sharp contrast art style. He noticed it was two guys on a Vespa. And then he noticed, wait, one of those guys has a bat. And they were driving away from a house. And then they noticed that the house is on fire. And he's like, OK, I need this game.
0: Huh. That's got a lot of character right there.
3: Yeah, you should put it in the show notes, right? The box lid is so, so, so full of character.
0: I like it.
3: (laughs) Last thing before we move on is like, also the fact that you're on teams is what makes this game sing. Mm -hmm. Because you have an ally and it's a set ally and it doesn't go anywhere. That helps so much with this game.
0: I'm guessing you can't share that much information with your partner?
3: No, no, you can share all the information with your partner that you want, but you can't share resources.
0: Ah, okay.
3: In fact, the only thing you can share with your partner is you could give them money. But if you give them money, you take a general action, which is share money, which is you give one coin to your partner and you give one coin to the bank. Uh. And money is a whole deal in the game. <laughs> and so doing that is a big expenditure, Okay, but sometimes it's necessary.
0: All right. Interesting. Hm. La Familia.
1: And that's familiar with a G because Italy. Yep. Mike, what you got? a game that I don't actually own, but I've played several times and... Freeloader. Well, the problem is, is like they just finished a Kickstarter and I'm not sure that I could afford it because if I do it, I'm doing all of them. <laughs> and that's a dangerous prospect. So that game is Final Girl, which originally was released in 2021 via Kickstarter, but just finished up their, what they call third season. This was designed by Evan Derrick and AJ Porfirio and was published by Van Ryder games. This is the classic theming of a horror movie where you are the final living or the girl who is supposed to survive till the end. You have a villain that you are fighting against mashed up with a location. And while there are set pairs, you can completely randomize them as well. Basically, each map has, like, a number of locations. You put out some other survivors on there that you have to rescue in order to power up your final girl-ness. And you win most of the time when you duke it out with the villain. Some of them have other special conditions that need to be met. But for the most part, that's the basis. The entire thing, though, is powered by a microcard building mechanic. Not dissimilar from that in Heat, Pedal to the Metal. You have an action phase where you play out actions, and depending on how scared you are, you roll some dice to see what those actions do. Then those actions are discarded. Then you go to a purchasing phase where you buy upgraded cards with your remaining time resource that you didn't spend playing actions. And then after you buy those new cards, all the ones that you used in that round go into the market to become available for the next round. And so there's a lot of like, oh, I want to get these movement cards, but I don't want to use them all in the same round because then that means that next round I cannot move. And so it's it's all about managing your card market, which I've decided that I think I just really like micro deck builders because they have all that fun with very little of the chaff. And then the villain goes and he's trying to murder people and a good time was had by all. <laughs> It's a tight little game. I love it. It's a little on the expensive side. I think last I checked, the Kickstarter was $600 for all three seasons. And I'm like,
0: well, yeah, but I mean, there's something like 20 characters by this point or something. I'm not saying that
1: you don't get your money's worth. What I am saying is I don't have $600 (laughs) laying around.
3: I do have the first season. I have the second season on the way. I didn't get it at the level where you get all the miniatures, right? Because I thought that was a little much. But I do have this, and I'm excited to play it.
1: Yeah, it sounds like fun. I mean, I'm in favor of solo games, so. I was going to say, this is a strictly solo game, but it plays relatively quickly. The maps themselves are actually on the outside of the box that they come in, so it's a nice small table game. But yeah, I, I enjoy it.
3: I think it's also the kind of game that you could very easily play with a partner, not in that, like, there is a mechanic for you to do that, but, like, you two could work together to, to solve this puzzle, in essence.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. It is, I'm going to say something probably controversial here, so take this with a grain of salt, but it has got a surprising depth of mechanics for a short solo game. Not that other games don't have that, mm-hmm. but this one it was pleasantly surprising. Very nice, cool. And I think if anybody likes horror, they will dig this because it definitely gives non-copyright infringement uh, <laughs> villains from all your favorite movies, such as Alien, Freddy Krueger, Jason. It.
3: But actually, none of those it's right. Just a similar to, a, but legally distinct from. Guy <laughs> and the hockey mask yep. guy. They're not infringing at all. They are no way related, legally speaking.
0: <laughs> yep. All right. So my number two is technically a solo RPG. At least that's how the geek metaverse has it categorized. This is Dead Belt. It's a 2021 release from a couple of Drakes. The designers are Sean Drake and Navi Drake. And this is a game where you are a prospector out in space exploring the wreckage of starships that is surrounding this enormous black hole. And basically the premise is you start with a sort of a character class and a ship and some basic supplies, and the ships that you're going after, you kind of randomly roll what class of ship and what specific ship you go to find, and then you're laying out a set of playing cards. It's a regular deck of playing cards, although there's maybe 15 to 20 cards, depending on how big the ship is. And these cards are all laid out face down. You pick a spot where you land, and whatever's in that spot that you land on is destroyed. So hope it wasn't anything good. And then you basically take your turns moving to another card, exploring it, turning it over and seeing what it is. And in very general terms, red cards are good, black cards are bad. And the Joker, which will be somewhere in the ship, assuming you didn't crash into it on the way in, is sort of the jackpot for that ship. So you're basically exploring, you're picking stuff up, you're expending your resources. There's four things you have to track. It's going to be gas... You have a, what they call glow, which is basically a flashlight that lets you see what a, a module is before you go into it. There's load, which is how much stuff you can carry. There's grit, which you can use for rerolls, And there's gear, which is just general equipment, which gives you bonus dice on stuff. And basically, you're expending those resources. You're getting stuff. You're finding things that may be valuable. You can only carry so much. So you may be taking trips back to the airlock to drop stuff off in your ship and then go out. When you find the jackpot, or the payload, I think is what they call it, they tend to be very large and also very valuable, because literally it's just the amount of stuff is the amount of credit you get for it, so bigger is better. And basically, you roll a die when you find it, and that's how many of the bad things that happen when you pick up the payload you can make not happen. So it's like there are things that, if you pick up the payload, the ship splits in half along a randomly determined line, and hopefully you and your airlock are on the same side. If not, you have to do spacewalks, which are fun. There are threats which will show up on the ship and start stalking you. There are things you have to spend to get it. And basically, you may be able to find enough low-level stuff to fill up your ship's cargo hold, but you're just exploring and trying to find as much as you can, and keep enough resources, especially oxygen, to get back to your ship and get away. And then there's a whole downtime thing where you can buy more equipment and replenish your supplies and maybe pay off some of your debt to the bank. Cause of course, you have a, a lease on your ship that you have to pay off. And each turn, it's like, well, maybe the bank draws compound interest. Maybe they offer you an additional loan. And, you know, when your debt gets high enough, they will start sending collection agents after you. For a pretty simple and fairly quick game, there's just a lot going on. It is dripping with theme. This is a game that actually has its own podcast, which consists of Sean Drake, one of the designers, basically telling stories about the dead belt in character as Chariot, who is sort of this DJ of the stars sort of figure. He has a great sort of old west voice. It's got a little bit of that space western firefly vibe going on. The time being what it is and space being
4: how
1: it is may be, We'd only hear their words of warning as echoes across the yawning gulf of history. You can
0: play it with two people, like exploring the ship together, but it's mostly a one-player game. I just really love it. It's got a lot of character. There's, you know, some sort of special high-difficulty missions that will get you extra great equipment. I haven't had a character survive long enough to buy himself out of debt yet, because space is really dangerous to you guys, but it's a lot of fun. It doesn't take up a lot of space. And I really quite like it. Dead belt
3: Sounds really cool. cool. Yep.
4: Yeah, my number two is pretty quick. And I talked about it a fair bit last time. It's Arceus, Twine Balza, mm-hmm. Quarantine LeBrat, Ludovic, Mal and Theo Rivere, published by comma. Got a lot of flack for being late as a Kickstarter. What? A late Kickstarter?
3: A very dare they.
4: This was really late and okay. yeah, messy. But no, it's basically kind of mansions of madness without an app. Okay. Except all science fiction, Egyptian, Stargatey kind of themed. And basically you go into a pyramid dungeon and do dungeon things and explore. That's the game. It's all deck driven with like Kenfire Chronicles, each of the eight adventures, so it's a much smaller game, comes with its own deck of cards and components. And do you pull those out and you play the particular quest two cool things about this are that the dungeon is all little box bottoms for your pyramid rooms so you get kind of the effect of walls you clip on doors and then put various tokens representing which card you pull to open that door or whatever at the start of the adventure and do the thing the other is the way monsters are handled there's no monster turn at all basically if there's a critter in a space with you it will attack you at the start of your turn and each critter has five different variants of the cards that you take that have different effects when they attack you on your turn it also has a summary of when you take an action to attack it and you roll a bunch of fight dice and they basically they can either hit them or hurt you depending on how badly you roll and then you just go from top to bottom, and apply the effects. So if you manage to kill it before the lower, nastier effects, then you don't suffer those. It's all so simple and obvious when you actually play it. You're like going, why hasn't anyone else done this? It's so simple and everything. Turns go fast. Cards are easy. You're always exploring. Once you set up and put all the tokens out, it just clicks along, and takes you an hour per scenario. So it is a very short game with lovely miniatures, and I do think it's replayable. There are some things going on. You have a camp, because it is a Legacy kind of game. Their take on Legacy is interesting, because the stickers are pretty heavy vinyl and loosely attached and supposedly reusable. They do come off fairly easy, but part of those is to buy upgrades for your camp. Things that happened at the start of every adventure that will kind of level you up. Aside from all the weapons and items you get. Some of those can be permanent wounds which affect you until you can find a way to fix them. Or hopefully you got a healer at camp that you can pay to fix a major wound. But there's a few other ways around that with the level up system. Oh, and most important, if anyone saw Moon Knight, <laughs> uh-huh. which I loved. It wasn't very popular among the Marvel crew, I guess. But there's the female hippopotamus death
0: dog. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's
4: totally a miniature for her. Nice. And this automatically you know, makes it the greatest game ever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest game ever. It's not even your number one, Frank. Oh, you're right. That is All the right. greatest <laughs> game <ever. laughs> The second okay. greatest exactly. game ever. Yeah, I bought this after you talked about it last time. So get yourself a retro point. I haven't gotten it to the table yet, but it looks pretty cool. I think it's something Megan and I might dive in on at some point. Yeah,
4: and it's just so, it clicks along so nicely and evenly, and it's fun. I mean, for all those big, giant, sprawling games, although this is a pretty decent-sized game, this one's just simple and fun and flavorful. It's lovely.
0: Nice. And that is, just for everyone's reference, that is A R K E I S. Yeah, it also does
4: five,
2: which is not a thing we see much.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's let Jason finish his list.
2: So my last one, it's also a cooperative game. It's not a dungeon crawl or a bass battler, so it is different. This is a game I actually ran into at Gen Con and did a demo there. Never even heard of it. A game called Mission Control Critical Orbit, released this year, 2023 by three WS Games created by Corey Andalora and Donnie Coleman. So this game is a real-time, asymmetric, cooperative game. (laughs) Essentially, any game you play of this has a hard limit of 20 minutes. You start a timer as soon as everyone's ready to play, and you have 20 minutes to accomplish your goal. And your goal in this specifically is you have an astronaut who's up in space who needs to reconnect their oxygen supply before they die and try and get back and, you know, land from space. One player will be playing the astronaut, desperately trying to make a path between the oxygen canisters using hose pieces that are in the shape of tetraminos, I think they are actually. And they're trying to make a continuous path, and they have to like open valves and have certain number of connections to generate enough oxygen to survive. Helping them are three different mission controls from around the globe they are all doing different things. This is where the asymmetric part comes in. The astronaut it has three dice. They're going to roll those three dice. Then all the other players, not the astronaut, all the other players have to agree on two of those dice that they're going to resolve. So they're six sided dice. So let's say they roll a one, two, and four. All of the other players have to decide what two numbers they're resolving. Are they resolving the one and the four, the two and the four, the one and the two? What numbers work best for the most amount of people? And then once they've decided on that, all of those other players have to write those numbers somewhere on their board. And their boards are very different. For example, one of the mission controls has a series of columns that have a total number at the top of them. They tend to be increasing, but they're kind of all over the place. It'd be like, I guess the numbers range from like a seven to like maybe a 35. And they'll have a certain number of boxes underneath that column that are where you can slot dice numbers in to try and reach that number. So maybe the column that has a seven only allows you to put two dice there. And the column that has, you know, 35, maybe you can put seven dice there, whatever it is. And so you're trying to slot these numbers in, but you have to connect any number you write down has to be adjacent to either an existing number you've already written down or one of the numbers that's already on that board. So you're constantly trying to slot these and get these totals to match what you need them to be. And you always have to write down something. So you don't have a choice. If they're just giving you stuff you don't want, too bad. Just deal with it. So that's one mission control. Another mission control is trying to create, they have like, I want to say six different tables of rows and columns. And they're trying to write numbers in the rows and columns that never repeat. So in your entire column, you want to have, let's say there's six spaces, you want six distinct numbers. You don't want to have the number three twice or the number two twice, whatever. You're trying to not have any duplicates. And you're also trying to do that with the rows themselves. So it's always constantly balancing, Okay, where can I actually make this work? And sometimes it just doesn't work out. So that's another one of the initial controls. The last mission control is trying to make tetramino pieces, like make the shape of a tetramino piece by writing the same number next to each other. So think of it as a giant grid, right? And like they will write the number one four times in a straight line. Great. Now they've got an eyepiece that they can give to the astronaut to try and help them connect those oxygen cylinders. But this player wants the same numbers all the time so they can keep making the same shapes. And they have to really be careful that they don't start overlapping with other shapes and screwing themselves over to not being able to complete things. So they've only got a certain amount of space to do these things in. So the entire time that you're putting all these numbers down as those mission control people, you also have these little bonus spaces that will allow you to give other people, either other mission controls or sometimes even the astronaut, a bonus that will help them. So, for example, like I might put a number on a icon of the person who's trying to make a Tetramino piece. And my bonus I give them might be something like, hey, you can pick any number you want and resolve it now. That can be huge for them, right? It's really helpful for the person who's trying to come up with the sums, because a lot of times all you'll have is like four columns that are like one (laughs) box away from being completed, and they just won't roll that three that you need. And they're like, hey, you get a bonus. You're like, oh, thank God I got that three. I can put that three in this spot and I can resolve it. Awesome. So it's very hectic. (laughs) You really need to be able to communicate well when you're done. Because when you've resolved your numbers, you're supposed to say mission control set or whatever it is. I can't remember. But you have to indicate, hey, I'm ready to go so that the astronaut knows, hey, it's OK for me to roll dice again. Because honestly, the more times they can do that, the better chances they have of getting home alive. That being said, I've never actually successfully done it, but I've gotten very close a couple of times. I really dig it. I love, of course, I love the theme. It's a fun, asymmetric, real-time game. And I don't, I mean, obviously, I don't have any other games like that. But it's a nice thing where you're like, hey, we're waiting for someone else to show up to go into a larger game. Cool, let's just bang out this 20-minute game. The cognitive load isn't huge, and it's not hard to teach, and it's just a—I don't know—it's a good time, despite the fact that I keep killing my friends, (laughs) making them run out of oxygen in outer space.
0: All right, cool. So that's one I hadn't heard of. Sounds interesting.
2: Mm -mm. Yeah,
3: totally. I will uh, get Jason to bring it over and give it a try. Sounds great.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I really want to play
4: that one, too, and that might give Jason a point. Okay, (laughs) that's fair. Because space, co-op, real-time space.
3: Yeah, all those words spark joy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, totally.
0: All right, very cool. Joe, what do you got?
3: So my number one is Artisans of Splendid Fail, designed by Nikki Valens, released by Renegame Game Studios. I love this game. Mm Mm-hmm. The only weak point in the game is the combats are a little simplistic, but everything else just screams joy. The characters are very fully realized, everybody having their own book, and books having different information, you having sections where you speak in your character's voice and kind of speak up for what they're saying, and in other players' books, they don't see the words you're about to say. The book mechanic is, I think, the thing I love the most. Like, I want to see more games do that. It makes me want to, like, design a game that does this in a space setting, I think would be amazing. But yeah, just hits functioning on all cylinders for me. Amazing design and an amazing vision of a world and setting and a bunch of mechanics. So good. So, so good.
1: Amen. The amount of editing that needed to go into those books to make everything line up and match and work is
0: at least to me, unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, paragraph games in general take a ton of editing and checking and cross-correcting. Doing it with four linked but not identical books is crazy, and I have nothing but oh, respect. Yeah. yeah, and there is
4: a, a one of the graphic novel adventure sets does come with four books and has some similarities to that book part, Crusoe Crew, oh. which has four kids beamed on an island. It's done in graphic novel style with four
1: mostly identical
4: books, and kind of has the idea from that.
1: That doesn't end with a pig's head on a spike. (laughs) They're doing it wrong. Yeah,
4: totally. So, yeah, but I agree. We finished ours, and that game is lovely and amazing. And, ah,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mike, what do you got? What's your number one? So we've already discussed my number one, which was Heat, Pedal to the Metal. Wow. Again, I just, I've... Currently got a thing for tiny deck builders, apparently.
0: Yeah, it's real good. I quite like it. If I had played it a little earlier this year, it might well have been on my list. My number one is Artisans of Planet Vale. It's number one with a bullet. It's full of so many really smart design decisions. The characters are really distinct and fully realized individuals. The story is a lot of fun. The dialogue is great. I have a couple quibbles. Some of the maps, it's hard to see where the exact spaces are. They've done some clever things by like incorporating the hexes into the design of the map, but Mm -hmm. it's not always easy to read. And also because I'm old, the sort of figures are tiny and it's a pain in the ass to have to sort of pick them up and see what number, you know, toad monster this is. But like I say, those are quibbles. It's such a good game. That's one of my favorite campaigns of recent years. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Frank, take us home.
4: So I cheated. Of course, I (gasps) always cheat for my number one. And yeah, Dungeons & Dragons 5e is really structurally the most complex and ornate character creation and kind of board game experience you can have. Because the rules are so codified, they're so complex, there are so many character options. The intricacies of how
1: all of it works together... Wait, 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 wait. Back, back it up here. Is your number one board game of the year Dungeons & Dragons 5? I think
0: it's Baldur's Gate 3.
4: Brian nails it, yes. <laughs> okay. And oh my God, really, Baldur's Gate 3 is. I think it's the best computer game ever made. So, so amazing. Wow. I mean, it's
1: real good. That's Don't a get me wrong. Stance.
3: The writing is really epic in that game. I can't think of another video game where I felt like if I wanted to go do something, the game would be like, yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. It does such a good job of feeling just like you have a DM at the table and is totally willing to go with whatever direction you want to go.
0: Exactly. All right. So these are the people you're here to rescue. You want to kill them all? Okay, cool. Let's see what happens.
4: And as always, its multiplayer support is flawless because of Larian. Mm -hmm. And they love multiplayer. So we do it as, you know, a Monday. We're we're still in Act 1 because it's a long freaking game. Mm -hmm. But it's tactically, and in fact, the Baldur's Gate is
1: tactically a lot more complex than default Dungeons & Dragons 5e. I don't know if I would say their multiplayer is flawless. One of my big pet peeves with this game, and again, this is a nitpick. But I actually think I like the multiplayer integration of Divinity to Original Sin better, and that is only because you can do separate conversations at once. You can in Baldur's Gate And I'm torn about this. I mean, you can do it in Baldur's Gate 3, but you can't see what's going on with the other conversations. Yeah. Well, okay, so I'm torn about this, because as somebody who has only experienced this game through its multiplayer settings... There are many plot lines where I'm like, okay, wait, what's happening here? What did I miss in this conversation? Which may be user error, but I feel like in Divinity, and maybe I'm getting this conflated with Celesta, uh, hey. it drew you into a conversation no. when somebody was having one. Absolutely it not. Divinity did not. Celesta does.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. And Divinity, would
4: you wouldn't know it's happening. In Baldur's Gate 3, you can at least, regardless of where you are, click on the ear and drop into the conversation. In okay. Divinity, in the Divinity games, you just don't know unless you're close enough, and walk up to them. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. I mean,
3: okay. I think my biggest complaint, and it's not even really a big complaint, is like, I do wish there was a mode in Baldur's Gate where you could say, hey, I want everyone to be in every conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. It would be a cool toggle, right? Because I know everybody yeah. not, doesn't want to experience it that way. Frankly, in some ways, not experiencing that way makes the game even more mysterious and fascinating. Mm-hmm. But in essence, now what we do in our playthrough is we just do a bunch of human semaphore locking of like, <laughs> hey, I'm yeah. about to start a conversation. Oh, okay, I'll stop what I'm doing and wait for you to start your conversation. Okay, cool, I'll start my conversation now.
0: Yeah.
3: And it's like we have to do that at function every time you're going to talk to an NPC you think is going to be important. And then the number of times someone will talk to an NPC they don't think is going to be important, and they realize, oh shit, hey guys, I'm in a conversation. It's actually important. I thought it was just a vendor, and instead, yeah. this is our next contact. right, yeah. It does make me wish it had that option. I'm sure that someone will put out a patch for it to be like, nah, all multiplayers do the same thing. It's fine.
1: I would also like to be able to tell the game that X character is our point man because (laughs) there have been a number of times where I'm just walking along and suddenly it's like, oh, you're the druid with absolutely no face skills? Well, guess what? (laughs) Now you're making important decisions and have to be
3: tested. That's what you get for walking around.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think and this should come as no surprise for me, I think I prefer it as a single-player game. No. Part of the thing with the multiplayer is that, especially because we're doing it with four-player multiplayer, and a lot of the plot stuff that goes on the game is kind of driven by your companions, and there's no room for them in the party. So I'm not sure how that's going to go as we're evolving because our multiplayer game, we're still only in chapter one. But I do really like the game. The voice acting is amazing. The writing is great. I have suffered some bugginess in Act 3, which is actually not surprising because Act 3 is ridiculously huge and takes a ton of previous decisions into account, but yeah, of course. it's really good.
4: <laughs> yeah, but you know, for all these campaign games we play and, and that kind of thing, we're having to deal with complexities.
1: Really, guys, just Baldur's Gate 3 multiplayer. It's so good. I don't know how I feel about your top board game of the year being a computer game. This is a it Frank happens. tradition. It is, uh. it is
4: absolutely a tradition. And, you know, we have an entire group that plays offline board games Monday. You know, this is how we found out about things like Across the obelisk. Mm-hmm. Etc. And we do that, you know, or Solasta, which mm-hmm. you know we would go back to Solasta in a heartbeat because there's still a whole bunch of things we haven't done. Yeah,
3: Bulwark Three is a stunning achievement for sure. There's no, it really, there is no it, question it about is. that. It's a stunning, stunning achievement.
0: Yeah, I will say, Frank, that if you think Fifth Edition D and D is the most complicated character creation in games, you have clearly never played Champions uh, or Ars Magica. Uh,
1: Oh. What was the one where you could die in character creation, Traveler?
4: Yeah, but you know, I'm familiar with those, of course. Yeah. But really when you get, you know, several of the expansions for D, there are so many concrete choices for just the board gamey aspects for how you can take a character. Yeah. I think five E, your menus fairly obvious of what kind of upgrades you can take, but the list of possible options is just massively overwhelming.
0: To most people. Yeah, we're special.
4: <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Far more complex than any board game. Yeah.
0: And that is our 2023 year-end wrap-up. We would love to hear what you folks played this past year that you think was really awesome, especially if it's something we don't know about or didn't mention. As usual, do the like, comment, subscribe, tell your friends, write iTunes reviews, all that stuff. And I hope you had a great year of gaming. We will talk to you again next month. Bye. Bye. Have fun. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via incompetech.com. Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
4: And uh, this was published, oh, wow, I didn't look it up because I'm a horrible person.
3: It's true.